This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion-dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thank you for listening. Today, our unicorn builder is Guy, CEO and co-founder of Check, a go-to-market security platform that's raised $183 million in funding. Guy, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Brett. Really good to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. As I was preparing for the interview, I saw that you spent about 10 years of your life in the Israeli military. So I'd love to start there. What did you learn from that experience? Right. So about nine, but I think everything I know pretty much today about scaling, managing a big company and so on really originated from my military service and specifically in the defense intelligence. In my first day of training, this was 20 years ago, I was an 18 year old kid who thought he knew everything and was accepted to this elite training program of the Israeli defense intelligence. And we all, all 28 of us thought we were hotshots. And on the very first day, the commander of the course told us, listen, and 28 kids that are 18 years old and know nothing about anything. And think about it like this. We're a small country surrounded by enemies. And for every single one of you, our enemies have about 200 PhDs who actually did something in their lives. So first of all, some humility. And secondly, you know, we're going to teach you this concept called, called artificial intelligence. And we're going to teach you how to compensate for the inherent lack of scale that Israel has as a country. So other than a million other things, I think, you know, teaching us how to scale while fighting the fact that we're inherently smaller and less experienced than our quote unquote competitors, or in this case, legit enemies is one of the main things I think I took from the military and, you know, artificial intelligence, one of those ways to compensate for lack of scale is to create automation tools, AKA bots. And I ended up building probably the largest anti-bot company on the planet. So it, it definitely helped as well. As you were spending that time in the military, in the back of your mind, did you have the idea that you were going to eventually start a company or where did that entrepreneurial spirit come from for you? First answer is simple. No, I didn't think so. I actually thought I'd stay in the military or the defense intelligence forever and ever. My dream was in my training program, you have to sign up for multiple years of service beyond the initial three years. And, and that really suited me because I thought I grew up in an age where buses were exploding in the streets of Tel Aviv every other week. And I didn't think there's anything more important that I could do than to help protect my country and my people. So for me, it was, I thought I would stay forever and ever. Then at a certain point, I didn't have a change of heart. Well, not on the main goal, but I decided that, you know, nearly a decade in the defense intelligence is, is quite a lot of contribution. And I really wanted to do something else. I felt jaded. And so I went on to become an entrepreneur. Funny fact, the person who was my commander for more than half of my service kept, you know, every time I said, no, I'm, I'm going to be the head of the defense intelligence or head of the Mossad, he kept telling me, no, no, no you're going to run to start a startup at the first second you get. I told him, you know, he's speaking nonsense. He was right. I was wrong. But the entrepreneurial spirit, I think, is somewhat inherent 
to the Israelis. I mean, you know, we were talking offline earlier and I, I was mentioning the fact that we are an incredibly peaceful people, somewhat ironically. You know, they teach us from the age of zero that peace is the solution, that, that you know, love, Tel Aviv is the gay capital of the world or LGBTQ capital of the world for a reason. That's our culture. And yet we're surrounded by enemies and threats. And when you grow up the way that we do in Israel, you become a few things. One of them is post-traumatic. You understand or your capacity to accept risk becomes high, becomes higher than most people, which is very important in the entrepreneurial life cycle. Secondly, then you go to the military. And as I described a minute ago, you have to be very inventive and you're only 18, 20 years old. You need to invent things that are going to help make very important things happen. And when you do that, you also discover that you can do it, like that it's doable to create the unimaginable, to build something that didn't exist before. And I think the combination of those two things, the inventiveness that they teach us the, and the risk, the lack of risk averseness, that's a term, makes for a very entrepreneurial ecosystem and characteristics of a people. That's what we have in Israel, and I think that's where I get the spirit of uh, entrepreneurship from. I was telling you offline that I visited Israel in 2016, and the reason I visited is I read that, I guess, infamous book now, Startup Nation. I read that book about Israel, and I literally booked a ticket the next week. I came to Israel, I think I was there in total for 10 days, and I just met with as many founders as I possibly could. And it was like one of the best weeks of my life. The types of entrepreneurs that I met there, the types of founders I met with, like they were inviting me into their homes to come eat dinner with their families. Like I've never seen anything like that. Like that type of hospitality, the openness to meet with some random dude flying in from San Francisco. Like everyone was just so cool and <laughs> fascinating and, and special place. And I have a, a deep love for Israel and, and everything that's going on there. Thank you so much. I'm very, very proud that we were hospitable. We're, I think... Again, this is another trait of of Israel and of Israelis. Yeah, we it, open our hearts and our houses. It's definitely felt. Yeah, when you're there, and even just talking with people from Israel, I think it's felt. So, a lot of love for Israel for myself and Frontlines and from the podcast as well. Let's switch gears Thank here you. and let's dive into Check It and everything that's going on there. So, just at a very very high level, what does Check do? So check is the pioneer and category leader in everything go-to-market security. What that means essentially is we protect the attack surface of your go-to-market operation. Go-to-market is marketing, sales, you know, everything in between, and every touch point that you have with the market, with the clientele and so on, user acquisition, marketing, advertising, and it's a huge attack surface. There are a ton of opportunities there for attackers, for fraudsters to make a buck defraud companies. And it's somewhat of an attack service that hasn't been tapped before in terms of protection or remediation or, or anything cybersecurity related. So whether it's bots clicking on your ads or people signing up to your platform in order to get a competitive intel about how you do what you do, or the marketing tools that you use that have access, you know, it's all third parties. A typical Fortune 500 uses at the very least, 500 such third-party tools. And every single one of them has access to your customers, to their data, their machines, 
So even protecting from your marketing tools, protecting your customers from your marketing tools and so on and so forth, it's really endless. So go to market security is essentially securing every single thing that starts from a potential customer of yours seeing your ad on facebook.com and up until they become an actual paying customer, securing all that spectrum. So I've done a lot of work in security and specifically I did some work with a vendor that was in the attack surface management space. Is the idea here essentially unbundling attack surface management because it's too broad and it needs to be specialized to focus on the go-to-market aspect? Well, specifically all the attack surface that has to do with the go-to-market space. Yeah. I mean, think about it like this. There are a ton of threats. There's the customer journey, right? A customer sees an ad on wherever, on a site, on a social media platform. They see an ad. That potential customer can be a human being. It can be a non-human being. It can be a legit customer. It can be a human being with malicious intent. And their customer journey starts if they're then and there or there and then uh, when they see this ad. From that point on, you, the advertiser or the brand, you're exposed. You're completely exposed. You're out there. And again, some of the attack vectors here have to do with efficiency more than anything. If a buy clicks on your ad, the main risk that starts with it is that you've wasted money on a fake click. But then that bot or that fake user with malicious intent comes into your site or your app and they start to engage with your site and they start confusing your optimization mechanisms and they start messing with your analytics platform and your decision-making. And they then potentially go on to do more malicious things like create certain cybersecurity threats to your site or your app and so on and so forth. And it's just a huge attack surface. So at the end of the day, if you're a marketer or if you're a CRO, not to mention a CISO, there is a huge spectrum of threats that we protect from that are specific to you and that nobody until we came to this ecosystem, nobody really focused on those specific attack vectors in that big attack surface. In addition to that, I really like cloud security, for instance. I've got a good friend who's the CEO of Wiz and a cousin that I adore who's the CEO of Orca Security. So essentially, I'm screwed by my friends because they're competing with each other. But it's two incredible companies and they show your cloud security posture and, and help you protect that space. We believe that go-to-market security is about as big as cloud security and potentially more. And what they do is they focus on developers, help the CISOs and fix, remediate the problem. It's exactly the same with non-developer users, you know, marketers, for instance, people who work for the CMO of the organization. If the CISO is looking at the go-to-market space and threats are coming and you want the marketers to fix those threats, to remediate those threats, you need to speak in the language of the marketer. So everything in go-to-market security can't just be, you know, solving problems that are go-to-market related in terms of security. It also has to be in the language of both the CISO and the CMO. It needs to have the integration there of the platforms that the CMO uses. It needs to have caveats or solve caveats that are very specific to the go-to-market space. For instance, CISOs understand false positives. CMOs do not. They need to be incredibly accurate. CISOs understand friction. 
like captures, for instance, because you have to add friction in order to add security. CMOs do not accept friction whatsoever. For them, a capture is a disaster. Everything that would hurt the conversion funnel or the user experience is unacceptable. So if you want to do go-to-market security, for instance, you can't do captures. You can't do things that add friction to the user acquisition layer. That's my very elaborated review of, of what is go-to-market security. When you were first starting the company, did you know this was a category creation play or did you go into market and then say, oh, wow, there's a real opportunity here to create a totally new category? We wanted to do a category play. I was sitting with my co-founders in one of the co-founders' house and we were thinking of, of the company that we want to build and we were obviously focusing on problems that we believe we can solve with our field of expertise. And we were thinking also of things that would make us happy on the day-to-day -day side of things. And, and it was obvious for us that we wanted to do something to do with security. And it was obvious to us that there's a huge opportunity where we currently operate. And we had a bunch of ideas. But at the end of the day, we felt that we can be pretentious enough and go on this risky adventure of starting a category. Again, it's very pretentious to think that you can start a category that, you know, that a startup can really build a category and do all the market education. And you know, it's a very tough task, but we felt like it would make us happy that building this category is important for the world, for the internet, and that we would enjoy doing this, even though it's extremely difficult. So we went about to do it and, and, and really build a platform and build a category. And now, in hindsight, I'm, I'm very happy we did that, but it was extremely risky and pretentious to think that we could do it. In the early days, were there any moments where you just thought, shit, I should just go and position this as a disruptor in an existing category? Like, did you have the market pulling you? Like, were you ever losing customers because of this pitch for something that's so new and different from what they were actually in market for? Did you have any situations like that? About 10 times a day, yeah, every single day. The entrepreneurial roller coaster is extremely painful until it gets easier. There's a movie called Lair Cake by Guy Ritchie, and it's named Lair Cake because there's a famous sentence there. It's not uh, PG-13, so I'll, I'll try to change it a bit. But essentially what it says is, you know, there are two mobsters. One of them is a veteran mobster. The other is young. And the veteran screws the younger mobster, and he tells him, listen, life is like a Lair Cake. You start your life in this world and you eat crap. I changed the word. The, the original word is a bit different. You go on in the world, you advance a bit and you eat more crap. Then you advance some more, you start eating less crap. And then you get higher into the rarefied atmosphere and, and you don't even remember what crap smells like. So it's the entrepreneurial, less extremely painful, somewhat violent, very scary. And I was thinking, myself, what the heck did you do? Pretty much every single day in the first you know, four years, at least. And four years isn't a lot of time. And a big part of it was, why the heck did you think you could muster the capacity and the cloud and the investors and the resources in order to actually build a category? And then it kind of stuck. It kind of happened. We had the critical mass and it exploded. What I've seen a lot with category creation is it's all about, you know, kind of capturing these trends as they're happening and then latching onto those trends. And one of those trends that I've seen really pick up in the last, I would say, three or four years has been go to market in general. Now everyone's talking about go to market. That's kind of 
I don't want to say the buzzword, but that's definitely you know, buzzing around right now. And that's definitely a big part of the conversation is around go-to-market strategy, the importance of a good go-to-market strategy. So it sounds like you align perfectly with that hot trend. Is that right? Yeah. And it's accidental somewhat. We never intended it to, <laughs> to include this tailwind. It, it just kind of happened. But yeah. Yeah. What we saw converging was that the CMOs became, and CROs became stronger and stronger in a business in terms of the management thing. If you look back and seven years ago, I think the CISOs, for instance, were significantly more important in an organization than the CMOs. And then it kind of turned around and we thought to ourselves, being security people, the CISOs, my guy, I mean, I protect him. I think what the CISOs are doing or her, I think what the CISOs are doing is incredibly important. And suddenly the CMO was obviously extremely important as well, but to a certain extent, not tech or cyber savvy enough is doing things without the consent or oversight of the CISO. And, and what we wanted to build through that is kind of the bridging the gap. We joke around, we say we were trusted by CISOs and loved by marketers and bridge that gap. But we never envisioned that go to market would become such a high demand term and, and so on. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Just so we can visualize that success, can you give us an idea of some numbers that demonstrate the success of both check and the category? Sure. As we mentioned at the beginning of the call, we had raised about $183 million to date, and that's the least interesting number. So hence why I started with it. Four years ago, we came to markets. Four years ago, we were at about zero revenue. And now I can't go into specifics, but we're looking at $100 million of annual recurring revenue directly in the eyes with very aggressive intentions of being there very quickly. All of that in four years. And, you know, when you start a category, when you just go with a bunch of products that haven't been sold to anyone before, there isn't a clear budget in the organization to buy these. It's much more difficult to sell than selling ERP, I think. And the credit goes to the market and the need in the market for that kind of product. Even though it's so difficult to sell a product that hasn't been sold before, it exploded. And in addition to that, we sell to two buyers in every single sale almost in the organization. One of them is the go-to-market person. Let's call him CMO or her CMO. And the reason I keep confusing it because in Hebrew, we don't have that difference. And the other person is the CISO. We kind of need both of them to sign off on an acquisition, which makes it even harder. And yet, you know, this is the scale we've gotten to. What do you think you got right when it comes to educating the market and really creating demand and then capturing demand around this idea of go-to-market security? I don't think that until you're CrowdStrike, you really have proven your go-to-market motion or, or product market fit. I think... You know, if you're at a $100 million ARR, you probably proved that you have product market push for a $100 million ARR or a good go-to-market motion for a $100 million ARR. Same for 150 and, and on it goes. So I, I don't think we've excelled. I think the numbers are very impressive, but we've made a lot of mistakes over the time. And at the end of the day, 
we're still a tiny company when you think about big tech companies. So I don't know if I can take pride in doing market education properly. I think we did a good job at building really great products. They're very easy to intuitively understand their need, measure their impact on the organization and, and so on. And I think we have a really great people all across the organization, including in sales, who are very good at demonstrating that value, at, at, at creating those relationships with both and with the go-to-market people and the, the security people and bridging the gap between them. So I don't know if we can take credit for doing market education properly, but I, I think we made a lot of mistakes and yet build a great product with great people who can very well demonstrate it and its value. Are you seeing demand though for go-to-market security as a line item? For example, if you just look at it from a marketing perspective or a sales perspective, it's a no-brainer. There's a line item for CRM. So if we just look at, say, the Fortune 500, you know, what percentage of them do you think are like actively now out there in market searching for a go-to-market security platform? Is it a high percentage or is it still a, a low percentage at this point? Much less than 25%, let's say. I think when, when you talk about Fortune, even 2000, I think you know, we have 15,000 customers today, out of which about 1,000 large enterprises. And with almost every single one of them, it was education. So it wasn't already there, you know, line item in an RFP process. There's definitely much larger understanding of, of the need, and it's more of a line item now than it was, you know, three, four years ago. It's still not enough. And to me, it's somewhat baffling because, you know, there are so many cases where a company's market cap was destroyed because of a go-to-market security problem. Now, for instance, if you take a master lag nation as an example with what happened with this Taylor Swift issue with scalper bots buying all the tickets for her world tour as soon as it was announced, Taylor Swift then, I think she tweeted, but she posted at the very least about it and she wasn't happy and you don't want to piss off Taylor Swift. And then the lag nation market kept the stock plummeted and then started the discussion about we need to scrutinize this market more aggressively and for monopoly reasons. And a shitstorm basically started around Live Nation. And I think a lot of public company CEOs need to be asked by Wall Street analysts the question of what are you doing to prevent what happened to Ticketmaster from, from happening to you? And it's not happening enough. And it's surprising to me. Still in, again, at least three of out of four cases where we go and sell to or pitch to a large enterprise, it's still a new category for them. They still hear about it for the first time. What do you do internally to get your entire team, especially the sales team, all aligned around this narrative and around that category story? From my conversations with other founders who are creating categories, they really struggle with that. And they struggle with that consistency, especially as the team expands, with getting everyone saying essentially the same words and the same story. What's been your experience with that? And, and what have you done to really make sure that everyone is saying the same thing? I've got a terrific COO co-founder who makes sure of exactly that. That's the short answer. <laughs> the long answer is that I believe it's a lot more difficult. Like we built deep technologies and then mind-blowing products, really. And yet I still think that scaling the company, building a big company, the most difficult thing is building the operation properly, you know, execution and so on. 
and not building the technology. Like it's much more, maybe because I'm a techie, but it's much more mystifying to me how to build a right proper sales organization than it is to build AI. You know, it's much more difficult in my opinion to get right. And I think we did it properly again for the scale that we are at now. I really, I have, in my opinion, the best COO on planet, Omri, who's also my co-founder and, and he does an incredible job in building operations and he owns, among other things, uh, sales enablement and training. And the entire playbook of how we do sales is belongs to him. And, you know, we work with solutions like Gang.io and, and outreach in order to make sure that everything is as mechanized as possible. So that again, the pitch at the end of the entire sales process is the same across the board in every single sale as much as you possibly can. Obviously, every account executive takes it to their, you know, niche, their personality and, and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, if you want to build a big company, you need to start at operations and sales enablement and making sure that everything moves at the right pace and, and with the right playbook and sounds exactly the same. And I think that's one thing, again, that we did right simply because my COO is the best in the world at, at what he does. What about analysts? How important is it for Gartner, Forrester, G2, if we look at the review sites, how important is it for them to embrace this idea of go-to-market security? I think it's massively important. I think Gartner, Forrester, G2, I mean, we, we have quite a lot of reviews. I think all of them are five-star, by the way, on G2, but, and we obviously speak to Gartner and Forrester about this quite often. It's a line item that's always easy to erase, even as you start a category, because it's quite costly to get the analysts to build a category and so on and so forth. So we've somewhat neglected it. I think it's one mistake that we've done thus far. And we're definitely working on investing it in it heavily starting of next year with both Gardner and Forrester. I think it's massively important massively important, not just for us and you know, our potential competitors, but also for, again, as, as I mentioned earlier, I think CEOs of public companies, CEOs in general, not to mention CISOs and CMOs and CROs, need to ask themselves, what do I do in order to prevent what happened to Ticketmaster from happening to me? Like, this isn't just, you know, if your cloud is being hacked, it's terrible. You know, it's really bad for business continuity, for and many things, but but what we solve for has a very clear and immediate and large impact on your market cap, on your company's valuation, on the trust that you have with your own customers. So I think if we do a better job with Gardner and Forrester, the immediate effect of it is going to be that a lot of CEOs ask, would ask themselves, what am I doing in order to prevent this havoc from happening to me? On the topic of competition, I had Godard Abel on the podcast a couple of months ago, and he's the CEO and founder of G2. So he's one of the companies, or leads one of the companies that creates categories. And I think he said they started off with CRM, they had one category, now they have 2,500 categories. So they've seen it a lot. <laughs> I asked him for his yeah. number one piece of advice that he'd have for founders who want to create a category. And he said, go partner up with your competition, go work closely with them, evangelize the category together, create demand for that category, and then you can duke it out and, and fight over capturing that demand. Is that something that you've experienced with at all? And are you seeing competitors start to use this terminology as well? 
I think what he said is incredibly, incredibly brilliant. It's really tough to do when human beings are running companies for all the, the same reasons of why we don't have world peace. <laughs> I mean, egos, aggression, competitiveness, and so on and so forth. Uh, we don't really have a competitor in the category. And we see a lot of small startups, again, in order to really be what Salesforce is for CRM, to really be a consolidated platform to tackle all the attack vectors within go-to-market security, you need to build a huge platform that we did. We also acquired a couple of companies in order to have a full fleet of solutions. And it's quite an undertaking for a startup. Now, again, we raised copious amounts of financing in order to get to where we got, both on the go-to-market side as well as on the platform side. And for a startup to start today and try and compete with us, I don't think any VC would invest in them if they start with the entire platform and, and so on. So we don't really have competitors. And that resulted in the fact that you know, I don't have a potential partner to... <laughs> to share the burden of market education and category building because there's no one that would really be a fit for educating around go-to-market security as a category in its whole. The burden is up to us, really, in everything that we do. I am talking to a lot of adjacent categories and the leaders in those categories and trying to get them to think of themselves as go-to-market security. And I think they are, in a lot of the cases, shy of adopting a category name that we've coined a check, but it will happen. Have no doubt about it. And from my understanding as well, it, it sounds like there's a big push right now to really make go-to-market a category. So it makes sense also that go-to-market security is part of that greater ecosystem of go-to-market. So that's also probably the case too, where there's a lot of different companies who are part of that ecosystem evangelizing go-to-market and security is you know one very, very critical piece of that whole story and of that whole ecosystem. Exactly. I mean, when we started, I was trying to explain investors how we're the yin to Salesforce's yang. And, and, and what I meant by that is, you know, Salesforce, innate, not just the CRM, like Salesforce as a company, SFDC, they enable go-to-market and we just secure everything that they enable. So absolutely. What would be your number one piece of advice to a founder who's in tech, B2B, enterprise B2B, and they're sitting here and they say, guy, I want to create a category. We've done the research. We think there's a category play. What would be your number one piece of advice for them? Well, to quote President Biden, don't. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> At the end of the day, I have a lot of pieces of advice. The main one being to not listen to any piece of advice given by a tech founder because they've done it for themselves. As in, I only have my shoes to walk in. And you only have your shoes to walk in. And every single story is incredibly different than someone else's story. What worked for me doesn't necessarily mean it would work for Joe Schmo or Jane Doe. So a lot of the advices, even if they're given by people who have been there, done that, are going to be misleading because it's what worked for them. Even if we're talking about playbooks. The one advice that is generic enough for me to be able to give is that it's all about the playbooks. It's all about the operations, biz ops, rev ops, you know, building a company properly. Of course, product is important. Of course, category is important. Of course, product market fit obviously is important. But more than anything, the art of playbooks 
the art of scaling a company, that's the only thing that's generic enough for it to be relevant for every single tech startup, by the way, B2B SaaS or otherwise, yeah, how to build an organization, how to build a CS organization, how to build a sales organization, how to build, you know, what's the right balance? What are the right metrics? Where should I strive to? And, and so on. That's the only real truth about scaling the company of any sorts. And the good news is that those playbooks are, they're there and it's for B2B SaaS. They're there. It's easy to read through them, more difficult to execute on them. So again, what I did is I co-founded the company with the best COO on the planet, in my opinion, and you know, he's Mr. Playbook. But I think COO is, even at an early stage, one of the most, if not the most important roles that you as a founder need to fill urgently. That's going to be more impactful to you than the world's best CTO or, you know, Amazing. Super helpful advice and, and very actionable. Guy, we are over on time. I, I don't want to keep you any longer. So we're going to wrap here. I'd love to have you come on for a part two to dive deeper into some of these topics. But we'll have to wrap. Before we do, if there's any founders that are listening in, they've been inspired by what you've said, and they just really want to follow along with your journey as you build and execute both this category and the company, where should they go? Where can they follow you? Check.ai, of course, and LinkedIn. <laughs> just I'm the only person on the planet with such a complicated surname. So it's going to be very easy to find me if you just search for T-Y-T-U-N-O-V-I-C-H. Complicated enough of a last name that I didn't even bother to insult you by using it in the intro. I just stuck with the, the first name guy. That was straightforward. So we'll make sure that the full name will be in the title and we'll have it in the show notes. for <laughs> listening in that wants to, uh, to follow along. Awesome. Brad, thank you so much. Thank you, man. Really appreciate it.